Welcome everyone to episode 43 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me Kyle Bodie. Kyle is the founder of Driveline Baseball. Driveline is widely considered the best place for pitching coaching in America. It was featured in the MVP machine. Kyle was recently the director of pitching at the Cincinnati Reds. Kyle, how's it going today? Going great. Thanks for having me on. You've recently not renewed with the Cincinnati Reds. The next position is general manager or bust. Uh, I take it you like being home at Seattle and, and basing at driveline. Yeah. Especially in May, in the summer, it's beautiful, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, just uh, definitely executive level or, you know, AGM, GM, special assistant, but that's where my eye is on. And that's where I think I can make the change and think I'm ready for that challenge. What's, what's your favorite thing about being on the road with the team versus uh, being at home in Seattle? Uh, the players. I mean, you can't, it's just such a great, it's a great feeling, you know, when you work with the players at driveline, they get better, they go into pro ball, you know, you know that you have the skill, but can you manage it with the team, with those dynamics, you know, when you actually put on the uniform and work with the players and then to see that uh, the work that you've been doing for decades, you know, continues, it, it applies in a team setting um, and even more than you thought, it's just extremely rewarding because these players are, uh, you know, for them, it's it's their career, it's their livelihood. You know, they don't have a lot of years to do it. So they're so hungry to get better. And then when you, they see the fruits of their labor and you have a small part in that journey, you can't, you know, can't say enough of it. When those guys go on to pitch in the big leagues on TV and talk about the same things that you talked about and that culture continues to, to get pushed, that's really rewarding. It's amazing. So many of the listeners will be familiar with your story, but some won't. So let me let me start it and then you take it from there. Um, my understanding is that about 16 years ago, you started coaching Little League near Seattle. You became a bit obsessive about it. You have very much an analytical mindset. You, you have been a, a part-time pro poker player. Um, you uh, dove in head first and you describe yourself as late to the game in reading Moneyball and not sure that you could uh, contribute much. But then when you when you became uh, obsessed about it in deep dove, now you're basically the preeminent person for pitching coaching in the nation. How do, how do you get from 16 years ago starting starting this journey to where you are now? That, that, that about covers it. Uh, it's uh, overnight success in 16 years, so they say. Um, yeah, it just there wasn't a lot of probabilistic thinking in professional sports at the time. There still really isn't in a lot of them, um, especially as applies to player development. Um, Kirk Goldsberry, you certainly know at UT Austin and then was with the Spurs, talked a lot about it when he and I talked about like a lot of the analytics are being applied as like surveillance, right? Like selection, player selection, player elimination, uh, and not a lot of development. And I think that's still true. And that's very frustrating. So that journey has really been as an econ major in college to playing professional poker, you know, card counting, online gambling, and then taking that mindset into professional sports, but not necessarily on surveillance and spotting opportunities, but rather developing them has been something of a something of a you know niche hobby of mine always. Uh, even when I was a gambler, I was always trying to find um, early to the mixed games, early to playing casino games that really like no new side bets, like really developing new opportunities was always something that I was interested in. Um, and that just carried over to baseball and professional sports. So I guess that's really the easiest uh, segue from there to there. 
within baseball on your Twitter feed, a consistent theme is that most pro teams do not cast the net wide enough in terms of looking at uh, all of the possible players that should be in their pool. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I would equate it to, to game selection, you know, forever, for years and years and years and you know, decades, people have talked about how important it is for game selection to play at the right games, as you know, as well as anyone. Um, and they're just not doing a good enough job there, right? What if you restricted your games to a certain type of, you know, game, whether it's hold them at a specific level at a specific casino and you didn't care who you played with and whatever, you know, in a lot of it, it's a zero sum game. So casting the widest net and, and spotting the best opportunities is huge in professional gambling. It's it's the number one thing. And in professional baseball, uh, there's just a draft that comes in and these players come in and it's very rote and they don't really think about uh, different ways to acquire or develop players. I think it's, it's become very stagnant on that side. So you were extremely gracious and helped me uh, teach a class last week uh, at University of Miami in sports analytics. And the theme of the course was what makes a good pitcher. And this course kind of blew my mind because there was many, there were, there were many shocking things. Um, I would say one of the first shocking things that you said is that although a, a major league pitcher can, of course, consistently hit the strike zone if they want to, they're actually not nearly as precise as one might imagine. Um, you, you said that basically almost no one could hit a softball size object, but it's much worse than that. Most people could not hit a basketball. Um, how big would the target have to be for your average major league pitcher to hit the target? Let's just say it's a square target. Let's just say 75% of the time. Yeah, it's uh, pretty surprising, very counterintuitive, but the answer for 75% of the time with a fastball, probably the, uh, I would say a radius of a circle would probably be roughly six, seven inches. So it's 14 inches in diameter. Yeah. 12 to 14 inches in diameter of a, of a circular target. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty surprising that that's considered real pretty good command. That is kind of shocking. Um, so as someone who studies, I would say a lot of baseball, um, it's fair to say that what I thought was going on before I listened to your talk was actually not what was happening at all. <laughs> like my experience in watching baseball is the same as many fans. I, uh, I spend a lot of time on MLB.com looking at where the pitches are coming in and, and of course watching baseball. Um, but there's a great deal of randomness when you're just watching those baseballs come in. And most viewers are assuming that what they're seeing is, is much less random than it is. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, people think it's very deterministic, and in many ways it is, but the when you start to really delve into the biomechanical side of throwing a baseball, just every single thing that can go wrong or the variance around your release point, um, smallest deviations at the hand cause huge deviations down the line, you know, 60 feet, six inches away. And so then when you start to think about that and the replicability of motor patterns, then of course you start to accept that there is randomness and that there is there are days that you have the hot hand. There are days where you have better control of your motor skills. And there are days where you have worse control of your motor skills. Uh, and they're generally imperceptible. So those uh, that's a source of, you know, what you would call randomness or variance in the game that makes the game beautiful, but also makes it super frustrating. So when you have a, a top pitcher, like 
say Verlander is on the mound tonight, his his arm is moving at about the same speed on every pitch, and his release point is about the same, but his finger position is different for every pitch. Is that an accurate description of what's happening? Yeah, and his release point could be, you know, whether it's a cluster of an inch for, say, the standard deviation uh, is below, is half an inch, still a deviation of a quarter inch at release is, could be up to a foot at the plate. It's crazy. And then it depends on the ball. Is it a different type of ball? Does it have mud marking somewhere? Is one of the seams not pressed correctly? And you find all these very small sources of, of entropy. And then when they come together and it's, it's pretty surprising that anyone throws as many strikes as they do, you know, and Verlander has a very, he has a very dominant strategy where right? he's very Nash equilibrium with no runners on. He gives up the most home runs in baseball. Most years, he just throws balls down the middle. He doesn't care. And then with runners on, he shifts the strategy, you know, considerably, he's more willing to tolerate walks, less willing to tolerate damage. Uh, whether he's thought about it analytically or not, you know, that's how he pitches, uh, and it's pretty impressive. It's a very good strategy, the way he goes about it. And in many ways, it's funny that you said Verlander. He's one of the, unknowingly, I think he's one of the pioneers of of, uh, of a very dominant and like correct strategy on how to pitch to minimize damage. Um, it's pretty pretty interesting. So you're saying he gives himself like a wide margin for error when when he can afford to, essentially? Exactly. He, he, he'd rather give up a million home runs with no one on base rather than walk guys and get into different difficult situations. And then when he walks, when players are on base, he, he shifts his strategy. He has two different strategies, very different strategies. That's great. That reminds me of a, of a tennis book that was written by a very analytical guy. I think he was a professor and he said that all tennis instruction books are meant for advanced players, but everyone uh, for four Oh and below should always try to aim like, for the middle of the court, six inches, I mean, six feet from the baseline, just to make sure they get the ball in essentially. I'm going to, I'm going to have to read that. That's, <laughs> that sounds great. No, it's, it's chess too, right? Ben Feingold. And I've, I've learned, recently started to play chess and a long, long goal of mine is, you know, potentially to become a national master, you know, and I've been playing in rated events and then I have a chess coach and a lot of it is just to keep me accountable. You know, they're not a fraudulent coach. They just said like, you lose because you blunder, you need to blunder less. You know, here's the way I think about it. And just keep the pieces on the board and, and do basic stuff. And so when you teach chess, when I teach my kids, you know, they're like, you're gonna start with way too advanced instruction. He's like, you need to start with like, what are the pieces names? How do they move? You know, and just like the very basic stuff. And I think that's very normal is that when you start to coach something or instruction out there generally, you go to an intermediate level when you're at an advanced level thinking that's far enough removed. And the answer is like not even close. Like you, you really take for granted the first 10 years you were bad at something. You know, and I think that's people don't understand how to coach people through that and how to like understand to get them to do the basic stuff. It's Similar in poker, right? When you're getting coaching, it's like you just can't fold in these positions. It's obvious you should race in these positions. If you play the hands face up, people just make mistakes consistently. It's like if you just do that, like if you can't even figure out how to do things correctly, you know, when the hands are face up and all the cards are dealt, then what are we talking about? Like, why are we focusing on ranges? Why are we focusing on metagame concepts? My friend David Gray says that he's been around poker for many decades and in his opinion, most of the biggest winners are just like golden glove center fielders. They don't do anything flashy, but they don't make any mistakes. And there's a lot of truth yeah. to that. Yep. So based on what you're saying for Verlander, um, it would be difficult, if not impossible to 
read the pitch in the absence of some like Houston Astros like uh, pitch tipping or tells. Um, and yet sometimes when players talk, they seem to say that they can read pitches. Is that mostly bullshit? Like when uh, Juan Soto had a, a viral video recently. Now, granted, Juan Soto, he's one of the best hitters in Major League, but he basically said that he's learned to read pitches, and that's why he's so good. Is that is that bullshit? Yeah, it's bullshit in the way that I think they talk about it. You know, the visual acuity is fun, scientifically, like fundamentally impossible, the things that they say. But what I think that they, I'm sure they believe it, right? But what might, what is probably happening in talking to a lot of the best players is no different than poker, right? Like they, tells and reading specific hands. So they're just really good at ranges. Like they're really good at narrowing ranges, right? When you're facing a pitcher and you have no idea, you have no idea what baseball is. You have no idea what the pitches do. You have no idea what he's going to throw, where he's going to throw it. Right. And over time, that's the same thing in Hold'em and any hidden information game. Um, and then over time you start to realize, okay, these are the ranges they do. And then the most successful players, as you know, like understand exactly the ranges the opponents are on and then start to narrow them. And over time, if they have a very polarized ranges, you know, like they get exploited, especially at the levels that I played, right at mid-limit poker, that's what's keeping people from being successful uh, or moving on is that their ranges become super polarized and shrunk. And then as the sample goes up, you start to understand exactly what to do. And then that informs the rest of your model. So a guy like Juan Soto is perfect at it. He knows exactly what he can't hit. You know, does he, did he get there analytically? No, you know, did, but does he innately just understand these are the types of pitches I can't hit. These are the, like, this is the type of what it looks like. I don't swing at these pitches. When I do swing at these pitches, I do well. And Juan Soto is the best player in baseball for reasons that I think are very boring and unheralded. He just doesn't swing, which is a very dominant strategy in today's game, because it's, I think he's understood that people's command is just not that good. Like we talked about and he just makes you throw pitches and he just capitalizes on mistakes. And that has a very, that's a very good strategy in today's game. And he's one of the best at it. Him and him and um, Stephen Kwan of the guardians and Mike Trout and say yes, Suzuki of the Cubs are probably the four best at it in the big leagues. That's, that's pretty amazing. So players are like the amateur uh, baseball fan that thinks that the pitchers are better than they are. Um, yeah, now, one of the things that amateur baseball fans do is that they talk about holes that a player has in the, in the swing, uh, holes that the batter has in the swing, and then they imagine that a pitcher like Verlander can like pick at the holes in the swing. Like, let's just say that they're particularly bad at hitting balls low inside, and then commentators talk this way as well, like then they'll say they imagine that Verlander is like picking on that. Is, is that, is that something that's happening? I would say that some, some are Verlander is a good example of that actually. So if you have his heat maps of areas that he gives up damage versus like his pitch uh, selection, like frequency map, it's like a puzzle, like them together is like 100% of the area. It's pretty impressive. Like he does a really good job of, and now that he's with Houston, he's really taken to the analytics portion. He's really into it. So looking at that information, he and he has that good of command. Uh, for relief pitchers and players that simply overpower players, like say like Shane McClanahan with the Tampa Bay Rays, um, or some or Tyler Glass now with the Rays, they don't do that. They just throw everything in the hula hoop, they call it. Like just put the hula hoop over the plate, and if like 80% of my pitches go in it, I'm gonna win because like my stuff is so good. All right. And then that's 
um, you know, they're, they're such an aggressive type of pitcher that they don't even think about those types of things because, to be quite honest, those two players, their command is – their standard deviation of miss is so high that they're best served by just throwing the ball over the hula hoop, right? So the Tampa Bay Rays front office analytically – probably has those missed distances and thinks very algorithmically, but then how do you convince a player that their command isn't so good? So instead of saying like, you're not good at something, maybe say like your stuff is so good that if all you do is, if all you did is throw it down the middle, you get everyone out, you appeal to their ego, they agree. And suddenly you've gotten to the right answer in a very different way. And maybe not for the exact right reason, but it doesn't matter. All that matters is that the players buy in and and get better. And then that's a self-reinforcing cycle. Very interesting. So, if I'm interpreting what you're saying correctly, um, we know that that power is very important, that fastball speed and velocity general generally is very important. So if someone has that weapon, but they don't have great control, they can they can actually benefit from randomness just because the pitch kind of goes where it might and it's hard to... Uh, it's hard for a batter to take advantage of the randomness. Whereas kind of my read on your data is that someone who doesn't rely on speed as a weapon, but instead relies on spin and control, they're in a way more vulnerable than McClanahan because if they go for a certain spin pitch or control and miss, and it doesn't have the right spin rate or whatever, then they, they get destroyed. Is that fair? Yeah. Hitters have polarized their ranges to, to punish mistakes and to lose to basically everything else. Like that's what's happened. And that's probably the right decision given where the game is at um, because to try to cover all sorts of different ranges, like they're just not able to, they're not skilled enough. So you, they, they really narrow in on one area and then hope the pitcher misses to that area. Uh, and then the best players in baseball really hone that advantage. And then that's Juan Soto and Trout, those guys that their swing rates are really low. So if you go to fan graphs or any of those sites and sort by swing rate and you sort negatively, like inversely, whoever swings the least in base, you'll be like pretty surprised. I think most fans would be surprised that the people that swing the least tend to be the best players in baseball, which, you know, is something I think Manfred and MLB is, is concerned with, which I think very fairly, maybe that's not the most entertaining product. So how do we get it? Then there's the entertainment part. How do we get it back to a game of more action and so forth? But in the NFL, we see this too, right? Like uh, running the ball is just bad. It's bad. We know that. Like for game theoretic purpose, game theoretical purposes, you need it and so forth. But you need it a lot less than people say. It's like bunting in baseball. You need bunting. There's a game theory component to it. But almost by saying that you need to do bunt, people over-index on bunting. It's no different than like crazy, like all-in plays in poker and things that like you should do 1% of the time. You know, inherently, if you tell a player like, hey, you need to do this like three-bet light or four-bet like shove light, these things, they're, they're part of your game. There's no doubt about it because people need to know that it's in your tool set. But merely by saying it, people do it too much, right? So that's that's like the niche case that becomes way too large. You got to be careful with the language that you use with the players. I'm hoping that you can go into stuff plus a bit um, at driveline you guys try to uh, distinguish effectiveness by the weapons that a pitcher has the the game plan how they use the weapons and then executing the game plan which is basically having good command and your favorite way of uh, quantifying it is a metric that you've created called stuff plus that is trying to in one measure, 
uh, take into account velocity, um, where the pitch is going, and the spin rate, the amount of movement. Is is that fair? Yep. Yeah. All the velocity and then all the components of movement. Yeah. Put together. You break it down by pitch type so that in terms of stuff plus a fastball isn't directly comparable to a to a slider, but a slider is comparable to to another slider. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, it's all indexed on the plus scale. So 100 is league average per pitch type. From the work you've done, that correlates better than any other metric, including the the modern defense independent metrics like XFIP and so forth. Is that right? Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's very very predictive. It's um pretty shocking <laughs> to me. To be quite honest, it's one of those things where intuitively you know that it's going to have a large impact. And then when you just do like naive regressions and against like normal stuff, you're like, man, it's like predictive power is pretty strong. The type of thing that you all are looking at, the type of measures, uh, velocity and vertical break, horizontal break, uh, these, these are things that you're working with all your pitchers on or just the, the major league guys? Yeah, the majority of them. The, the, the kind of the sliding scale for players as amateurs to pros is usually they don't throw hard enough. So, you know, their speed is too low, fastball velocity. So we need to do that. And that's physicality, that's mechanics, you know, that's our science in our motion capture lab. Um, and that's a years long process, but they need to throw harder and their stuff needs to be better. So they need a better slider, splitter, curveball, whatever. They need to develop their stuff. And then lastly, and this is the typical progression, they need to work on their command. So their intended miss needs to go down. Uh, and then we practice that. And a player that people might want to f- keep their radar on that had that journey as uh, Cole Uvula, who's with AAA with the Orioles, and he has a zero ERA, uh, and he's doing quite well. He was Rule 5 drafted by the from the Rangers to the Orioles, and he's a guy with, like, high spin, high stuff plus numbers on his pitches, um, and he's, you know, he, he's poised to potentially make an impact on the major league roster here fairly soon. He went from a guy in college who needed to gain a lot of velocity, then his stuff needed to get better and he needed to refine things. And then his command this off season is the only thing we worked on, uh, and some physicality areas of high performance. And then as a result, his command's gotten a lot better this year in AAA and his stuff and his velocity he's retained over the six or seven years that we've been training together. Uh, so it's really cool to watch that journey unfold. Uh, because we've learned that journey along the way. It's not like we knew it six years ago, seven years ago. We have developed it over time, which has been really awesome to see some of our first-year athletes, you know, go along with us on that ride. So pitching, um, you need you need a live arm to get to uh, the truly elite levels. Like you need a, the right twitch speeds and some level of of talent, I suppose, in the same way that you need a live arm to serve 135 miles an hour, but um, some part of velocity is, is teachable through better mechanics and uh, uh, improved gym routines and so forth. Yeah. There's definitely a base level of athleticism, uh, but I would argue that we don't even really know what that is. You know, we, we've been continually surprised every time we maybe not every time, but a lot of the times that we declare this player doesn't have the base level of athleticism or whatever, you know, we, we can be wrong. You know, that's the beauty of the game too. It's, it's very tough to tell. Uh, we just don't know enough, you know, even with the tools that we have at our disposal and driveline is the preeminent industry leader at it. There's a major league team in our facility right now that's uh, touring it and seeing how we do things. Um, and it's, we have all this great data and these models that work and they have strong predictive power. And yet uh, professional sports is, is a definition of a collection of outliers. 
right? That, and that's the beautiful thing is every one is a sample of one, right? So generalizing, it'll never be fully encaptured by a model, right? There will always be outliers to learn from and to either incorporate that information or discard it as a true outlier. Uh, but there's plenty of that, which is pretty, pretty cool. What's your view on uh, junior baseball? You've, you've sort of, uh, I think on Twitter, spoken out against, um, I don't know, some of the, some of the farm system for junior baseball where they have these expensive camps and people become well-known quantities at young ages and it, it sort of distorts the system and, and the playing field in a way. Um, and, and then, uh, you, I, as I understand it, your initial motivation in studying mechanics was actually injury prevention rather than player improvement because you wanted the young kids you were teaching not to get injured. Um, so, um, what's your, what's your thoughts on the, on the current state of junior baseball? It's, uh, I think you hit it on the head right there. There's a lot of, uh, many people have covered the exploitation of kids and parents primarily to separate them from their money. So it's not really something I focus too much on. I, I will say I agree with that. Um, what I tend to think is that this over-professionalization of baseball and expensive camps and so forth creates a very homogenous product. I was just talking to my friend who I worked with last year. He was here today visiting. Um, we worked together with the Reds. Uh, we're both not white. We're both minority background. And we talk quite a bit about diversity and improving it in the game. And this homogenous group of players creates a very, a, a homogenous, you know, a very low diversity in race and socioeconomic background. But additionally, it creates um, homogenous skill sets. So, that wide net going back to that, you know, the best area scouts that I know that go and find talent actually go and find talent. Like they go to backfield high schools in the middle of nowhere in Buffalo, New York, uh, and find players that throw 10 innings per year. And they have a chance to, you know, to, to make an impact on a major league roster, you know, down the line and draft those players. That player never is exposed in a showcase or he's never exposed in this funnel that we put players. And that's a real problem because baseball's history is not of that, right? Soccer's history, football's history is of putting people in camps and to develop their skills and, and so forth. And, and maybe that model works well. I'm not too familiar with that. But baseball's history is truly, the history of baseball starts and begins, you know, starts and ends with the scouts that go and find the talent. And that's the beauty of this, of the game is all these players on the backfields can be discovered at any time. And to reduce that because of lack of work ethic and because we create a homogenous product and, and we decide that these are the things that, you know, we want to search for a remove some of the magic of the game but B also really removes a lot of the edge of the game. You know, so much of your edge is finding those, those, those great talents out there. Um, and I think that the current model really reduces the opportunity and the incentive for that. And I think that a makes it a less diverse game, which is bad, but B also makes the game worse by skill. Um, there's no, no denying that we're losing a lot of the best player, the best athletes in this country to basketball and football early people like to focus on the financial side of it, the economic side of it. I'll absolutely not argue against that. But I do believe that there's just a lack of interest, you know, by funneling people into this homogenous program. It's very boring also. So uh, getting get uh, different avenues to acquire talent and to put into the pro funnel, I think is it should be the number one priority of Major League Baseball. One thing analytics has done, though, is um, bring people up faster from minor leagues and from college because you're able to assess them in a cleaner way is uh, maybe before you address that I on Twitter, there was a, a debate last week that you got involved in where there was a young kid, 25 years old. He finally got his chance 
in the minors. His his stats were um, quite incredible over a short sample, and then he was cut. And part of the speculation was that he was he was the equivalent of like the uh, the number eight guy on the tennis team who doesn't get a scholarship and beats up on the number four guy, but because he didn't get the scholarship, the coach doesn't want to play him, that kind of thing. Yeah, that absolutely happens. It's very frustrating. And it's because you get locked into a type of acquisition model. Like these people are here to to be the JV tennis player. I know I've been that when I was in high school. You're here to get your ass kicked by this first singles player. Um, and, you know, that's it. And then I never was good enough. So it's not a story about me. But, you know, when there is some surprises, it becomes a great Disney story, right? There's movies made about Rudy and, and so forth, right? But the reality of it is those are all outliers. And, and shifting our thinking to getting the best talent on the field and removing the ego is something that is uh, very tough to do and just hasn't really been done. In terms of injury prevention for young players and for for established players, um, I have a new perspective on this because I had elbow surgery three months ago. And... Um, I know that the way that you all think about injuries at driveline is that you have quantifiable risk and there's a point that is different for each player where your quantifiable risk becomes high enough that no matter what the player is feeling or what is being observed, you should just pull him because the risk is too high relative to the reward. And that way of thinking um, really struck a chord with me because... Um, basically when I developed the injury that caused the surgery, if I could feel the injury coming on in any way, it would have never happened. Like if there was any warning sign, like it would have never happened. It, it was that my risk was going up because I was doing weights fairly frequently and, and then also playing tennis and I didn't know that my risk was going up and then quite suddenly, boom, torn tendon. Um, so how, how do you all think about quantifying load and stress? Yeah, that's uh, been the number one topic that we've been focusing on. So we have a wearable, we purchased a company uh, called Modus Global um, or their wearable division, um, which you wear on the elbow and measures, works for tennis too. I, I should send you a sensor. Um, and it measures uh, throws, uh, swings and so forth and the intensity of those throws. And so as a result, you can like building up enough information there uh, it gives you a good general idea of the work, a sports-specific workload. Then we also use uh, force plates for jumping power, right? Like how much, uh, how consistent are your jumps? How powerful are your jumps? And, you know, compared to your baseline. Uh, and then, are you getting better at that over time? Are they getting worse? Um, and then, you know, wearable stuff like the Aura Ring that I wear or the Whoop Strap. You know, we we integrate with their APIs and measure readiness score, and then put it all into a model to generalize, you know, to generally check risk, right? And then where you fall on the risk scale depends, right? If you're a major league player and you're Shohei Otani, for example, you know, your, your tolerance for risk should be fairly low comparatively. Whereas if you're a minor leaguer and you're older than Shohei Otani, but you're in the minor leagues, your tolerance for risk has to be much higher, right? Because to get where you want to go, you're clearly going to have to accept more risk on that continuum. So I think it's both sides of it, right? Yes, you're trying to avoid injury, but that can't be the only thing we focus on. You know, we have to, it does no good if your availability is 100%. If you're always available, but you're not good enough to pitch in the big leagues, then it doesn't matter, right? What matters is where on the, where on the risk scale should we be? And do we have, you know, how much of that, how much of the variance around that do we have solved? 
And it's not 100%, but over the last three years, we've done quite a bit of, we've made quite a bit of strides. And as a result of knowing much more about risk reward and all the things that go into injury and performance, our athlete results internally have been never better. And it's been awesome to make not that shift because that's always been driveline's idea, but to actually have a model around that data and to have the best minds in baseball working on that every day from high performance to the weight room, to our skill specific coaches, to our analysts. That's the real secret of driveline, um, which is very hard to replicate is that you have everyone very like bought in to, if you work at driveline, you know what you're getting into. So everyone is very, very bought into this idea of a data driven model that do we have disagreements around it? Yeah. Sometimes very, very fiery ones, Right. But the concept of how we do it and apply it is really um, it's like that's the advanced side of it. You know, the beginning side of it is like, let's just let's just accept that there should be quantifiable risk, which most major league teams are just not even there. Now, from the fan perspective, um, the shocking thing in terms of load management this year was Kershaw getting pulled at 80 pitches in the in the perfect game. Uh, obviously, for him, he would be another person who. Um, would have very low risk tolerance. He's very expensive. He's on a team that's going to win and has plenty of depth. It's early in the season. Um, What kind of things might go into that decision? I assume the amount of work that he might've put in, in the off season and things like that. How, how would, how would that decision be thought of? Yeah, I think that's in the spring training with the lockout and he cited it too. You know, the spring training was shortened. He didn't have a lot of pitches coming into camp. A lot of big leaguers didn't know how long the strike, I'm sorry, the lockout was going to go. So they didn't want to, you know, people accused them of being lazy. Well, why didn't you throw at the normal time? Well, you know, they're caught in an incomplete information. If they continue to train like they normally would, expecting the resolution to happen when it normally does. And what if the lockout goes five more months? Suddenly they've accumulated quite a bit of workload that to them is useless, right? They could have just not thrown for three months and, and decreased their risk, which is fair. Um, and I think someone like Kershaw is a, is a prime example of that, you know, so when he had that shortened spring training and then this, what we call chronic workload, his, his, you know, baseline of workload wasn't as high as it probably usually is because he's pretty diligent about his work. Um, but he was restricted by time, not due to effort. And then as a result of the game, you know, reaching on it, they just got to a point where, you know, while a perfect game is, is certainly something to behold, that just maybe they both made the decision and Kershaw's owned it and said that he felt that it was best for the team. You know, what, what he privately believes, who knows, uh, but it's easy to see why they came to that conclusion. And it's an unfortunate part of the game, but it is what it is. I went to an NBA game in San Antonio and I watched the Warriors and Steph Curry and uh, Clay didn't play. Right. Because of load management. And if you're going to do it, especially post COVID, when you shorten these seasons and the rest periods go down, that's just your professional sports are going to have to accept that that's part of the game um, and fans, too, which is an unfortunate part of the game. But it is what's in the player's best interest and therefore what's in the organization's best interest. I have a young son, Bear, who's eight. Uh, um, if he shows an interest in baseball, how, how do you how do you start in the right way? Honestly, the most rota- the more rotational sports he can play the better. So baseball tennis is like probably the number one thing they should also do. The mechanics of throwing a ball and hitting a ball are very different. They're very similar, but have baseball is very dependent on elbow extension velocity, like how fast this motion happens uh, and internal rotation. Um, Sorry, internal rotation. So this motion and in tennis, it's much more about elbow extension. The arm is fully extended uh, for striking the ball. It like serves. Um, So while they look very similar, 
they use very different ground contact points, right? Most of the best tennis players are weightless at, at ball strike. Um, when it comes to the serve, uh, their arm is fully extended. So internal rotation doesn't happen the way that it does in the throw. Um, and the reason that that sound now that sounds like you shouldn't play tennis to get your baseball throwing faster. Um, but it's precisely due to the differences that you want a, a varied a map of skills. Like we find that the best command and the best development of athletes is when they are, they're forced to, to make a wide variety of things that are related to the tasks. So that would be golf for just pure rotation um, and getting it from a, like a very restricted position to tennis, which is much more free to throwing a baseball. And then whatever sport you end up wanting to play, like that's all, all those sports combined, hitting a hockey, like, hit, like slap shots in hockey come from an unstable surface. Right. And so all these very different and it's a much more unilateral sport, like each single leg matters more than both total, which is not true in golf. Right. And not true in baseball. So it's actually super interesting when you have this blend of varied characteristics, you actually want to avoid specialization when they're young. Um, and furthermore, it's just more fun to play more sports um, and even sport, even like activities in sports like bowling. Right. Teaches rotation in a very different way. Um, so I think just having them play a bunch of different sports and always aiming to do everything at high speeds is important. Unfortunately, in golf and, and tennis, I'm not sure about tennis necessarily, but in golf and baseball, they're the pred predominant kind of education is to do that. Like TPI, Titleist Performance Institute, is all about developing speed and power at a young age and then fairway accuracy at a much later age. And while people point to Bryson DeChambeau as like the, the, the poster child today, make no mistake for people our age, we know that the poster child is Tiger Woods. Right. He single-handedly changed golf um, on by destroying the distance records and by not necessarily needing to hit fairways. Because if he's in the rough, but he's 60 yards further than you, it doesn't really matter how bad his lie is. You know, like that's that's just it narrows his choices, makes it makes it able for him to make better choices, easier choices. Um, and that's what changed golf and uh, tennis. You find that serve velocity is very, very correlated with success. Um, people will point to like random people that have high, like super fast speeds, but they have no other parts of their game. But I would say that like players like Taylor Dent like got a chance to play at ATP because their serve was so overpowering. You know, it's not that Taylor, yeah, Taylor, if he did other stuff better, he would be, he would have been a better pl player. But maybe he would have never been world rank sixty, you know, because his serve was so overpowering. Um, so it's just one of those things. Having an unassailable single best tool is usually the best way to make an impact at the professional level. You talk about golf and tennis, and I. I was surprised to hear that at Driveline, it's the same technology. It's Hawkeye and TrackMan. Um, and one question I have for you is, I've, I've been fortunate enough to get some raw data from tennis before, and also actually from PGA. And I've always found that when I see geographical data that's coming from, say, Hawkeye, uh, I have no hope of interpreting it. And I don't even know anyone who knows how to interpret it. What, how do you deal with the challenges of geographical data? And so by geographical data, you mean like the command or? With tennis, say with the, the Hawkeye data, which really has never been analyzed very carefully because in tennis, the data is owned by each individual tournament. And so there's no centralized uh, geographical data even though on every match, like we have all of the details about how the ball is traveling. We know exactly the spin rates, where they're landing, velocity, all this sort of stuff. Um, but there's no real centralized data source for it. 
However, if um, if someone said, "Okay, Brandon, here's the here's all of the Hawkeye data from the Miami Open," um, I wouldn't even know how to start. Like it just comes in in a form that I believe I would need an expert in geographical information system. I, I would need an expert in geographical data to interpret for me is is that is that right yeah that's you you do need subject matter experts you know and, and a lot of the models that we've built built off of stuff like mike fast and colin wires and they both work for the braves now um but there's people that have actually done that and then actually like testing theories about like what do these things make sense right so just going to tennis pros and saying like does this make sense and then whether they say yes or no you know it it's not about the answer necessarily. It's about getting to like testable hypotheses, right? And that's why subject matter experts are so useful is having someone to give you like, this is what everything I believe about tennis and how to hit shots and command and so forth. And you know, some percentage of them are BS. Um, so it's not about them being right or wrong or ex post facto. It's about, okay, I need a list of testable hypotheses. I don't know enough about professional tennis to generate them. Like we need Sam Aparicio or like the, the best coaches in tennis to just generate hypotheses and then we'll test them. And I think that's always a really good place to go. But then that just gives you the landmark surveillance data, like gives you a way to interpret surveillance data. The real test is you don't know where the player was intending to hit a ball, right? Like, so you, it's not, you know, not easy to do. So being able to chart intended versus actual is I think something really exciting in tennis that would be done and we do it in baseball. Well, it's very new in baseball, like uh, live charting intended versus actual. And then how you might be able to do that. So for baseball, you just tell the catcher, wherever you put the glove, I'm going to mark as the intended target, which sounds like normal. It sounds like that would be like the thing, but in a lot of games, like uh, catchers, a lot of organizations, if you don't instruct them, will put the glove like on the ground. It's like, hey, throw a slider on the ground. Like we want it down and away. Now, if that's the true intended target to bounce the breaking ball, fine. But in a lot of cases, the catcher's like, no, I'm overcompensating because I want them to throw whatever. So you have to kind of instruct them like, hey, I understand you're trying to help the pitcher. That's great. But by doing a inconsistent data collection, now we, we we can't now measure his command on pitch types. So that's more important than any micro improvement we might see in the game. What's more important is that we have consistent models and that we know that our training is affecting people. So for tennis, that's the number one thing that I would, that's like the number two thing I would want is how can we track intended versus actual? And to your point about anyone under 4.0, just hitting ball six feet from the baseline and that, like, I think it'd be really cool to like have an overhead camera or an iPhone and then plot. I intend to hit this spot 100 times and see what your average miss distance is. They'd be pretty, pretty eye-opening. As a guy who's hit a lot of baseline strokes in my day, um, I'd be pretty scared to see it. <laughs> yeah, well, tennis is a unique game because it's so hard to be profitably aggressive, right? Because most people have good reach and are pretty fast. So to be profitably aggressive, you have to string together like three strong shots in a row, which is a tough parlay. You know what I'm saying? So it, it often pays to be defensive. Even at the ATP level, you, Joko is essentially a counterpuncher. He's just the most amazing counterpuncher the world has ever seen. Wouldn't say that that's changed due to like technology. So obviously when I was growing up and part of this is uh, just my background, but I was a huge fan of Michael Shane growing up. Right. And like that type of speaking of, you know, counter punchers and baseline, but it was kind of the game as uh, David Foster Wallace likes to say, uh, has been to a brutal art 
of power baseline players, right? Ivan Lindell and, and so forth coming through. And now every player hits the ball with incredible pace such that like approaching the net being profitably aggressive is very difficult because balls hit from the baseline are hit 30 kilometers per hour faster than they ever were. And a lot of it is due to equipment advancements. Do you think so? Baseball faces this problem in pitch design and other ways, but I think tennis faces a shift has faced a shift in their game away from the chains and Connors to more of the power, the radics of the world. So I'll pose the question to you. Do you think technology has made that change and like, where's tennis? Where's the, next area for tennis from that it's similar to baseball where they they always make changes in the structure of the game based on what they think the fans want like obviously runs are way down this year and i don't know your view on that whether it's just weather or whether it's statistical chance or whether it's the change in the ball and so forth the players seem to think that some combination of a, a deader ball with different use of the humidors and things like this is, has caused the lack of runs. I don't know your view on that, but at any rate, some people think that that was a decision somehow from, from up high. Um, in tennis, what definitely happened is that there was a decision from up high uh, to make court slower and ball slower. And so in the, I don't know, 25 years ago, you had players like Greg Ruzetsky, which, you know, nice guy, great commentator, but didn't have much of a game other than like 140 mile an hour serve. Um, that player would not be possible today. Um, I'm, I guess you have some isolated examples that are just so amazing and serve like a Karlovich or something. But, but largely speaking, that, that game type has become impossible because the courts are much slower and the balls are, are are much slower. So that was a that was a decision on the organizer's part because fans like more intricate points. Um, the um, the other big change that happened was the the string changes, even more so than racket changes, allowed players to hit very very precise shots. Um, they're just so unbelievable now in hitting passing shots because the strings allow for such high levels of spin and so much precision. Like they can, they can just hit the ball on a dime. It's all, it's really not at all like what you described for the baseball pitchers. Like they can be extremely accurate. Um, you can see it. Like they hit these just beautiful tight cross court passing shots and they're not missing them very often. Um, Joko can thread a passing shot down a line like repeatedly. Um, so that's a lot strings. Um, so any form of aggression, it, it, it requires this tough parlay of, of three or four shots put together. Um, and so counterpunching is, is quite effective. Now what the counterpuncher looks like on the ATP level, they, they have a lot of bite on the ball, but, um, but still the, the overall strategy is basically defensive in nature. Uh, and yet, you know, one of the most watched games, right, is the Eisner Mahout ridiculous <laughs> marathon. So it's funny to see that, like, everyone's the problem is, is that when you have sports analytics and you have economics, people that are familiar with just like strategy, not necessarily even analytics. I try to divorce as someone that's an economist yourself, right, the concept of economic modeling versus like financial and like very statistical. I, I think it's very different 
from a from a human analysis perspective and just say like the, the, the problem so to speak is that these games were un, they laid unoptimized for a century right and then you have people that are just smart <laughs> just like this is a beatable game and then you know like they're not playing the game optimally like no one did anything wrong it's just that as soon as people started looking into it like in, in the NBA, it's like three is greater than two. It just took a long time for people to understand, you know. Um, and when you make these changes, like it inherently changes the game. And does it make it less entertaining? I don't know. Like I think that it's very common to say that baseball is less entertaining when there's more strikeouts and more homers. But it maybe is that a self-defeating prophecy. Maybe it's because we talk about it that way. And maybe we don't frame it that way. And, you know, I don't know. Yet we love watching reruns of Kerry Woods striking out 20 guys and Roger Clemens doing it and Barry Bonds hitting a, a million homers. So historically, you know, when we look back and all of our things that we talk about, we don't talk about the games that were over in two hours and had a lot of ground ball outs. We talk about these outlier games that have crazy things happen. And then yet on the daily basis, we say these things aren't exciting. So it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to believe that that's necessarily the truth. Um, you know, uh, it's just hard to, it's hard to say, you know, and same with tennis. I think I get that like the constant rallies and so forth are probably more, more impressive yet. You know, people love watching uh, clips of, you know, clips of the hardest serves ever. Right. Those are always have a lot of, a lot of views on YouTube. And so certain streaks like Sampras at Wimbledon, that probably couldn't have, I would be inclined to say that that wouldn't happen in the modern era. Now that Wimbledon is much slower. Um, but Sampras was a guy who made a study of the serve and had what was the perfect serve, right? If you're thinking about uh, release points and spin rates and hitting your targets and variety and all of that, like he was the perfect guy. He Every toss looked the same, every motion looked the same, but where the ball landed and what spin it had was quite different. Um, and the result was that he held serve 97% of the time at Wimbledon. That's pretty hard to beat. Yeah, it's not not easy when you always win with the white pieces. <laughs> like not not easy to not easy to win the match. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask about uh, analytics from a fantasy perspective because I do have uh, people that are interested in both season long and daily fantasy here. Um, so pitching is a big part of the game of daily fantasy. You're trying to predict pitcher performance, I guess. A starting point is um, in the minds of daily fantasy players, they have a ranking of pitchers. And my own sense is that they're overconfident in the ranking of pitchers. And there's probably a, a good bit more randomness than one would think. Um, do you think that that is true or, or do you like, you would be able to rank pitchers better than anyone. Do you, do you in your mind have a, a very firm hierarchy in pitchers? Like I think someone who knows the NFL very well, they could have a very strong hierarchy of quarterbacks and be essentially correct. But I'm wondering if the same is possible in baseball. Yeah, I think that there's considerable randomness. Yes. I think there's tiers are probably the best way to, I know that DFS people do think of it that way. Um, but yeah, strict rankings of who the best player is, or, you know, I think it's very overblown because, and that's just evident in the back-to-back -back Cy Young winners of which there are very few, right? It's just the control, there's just a huge amount of randomness on batted ball luck and, uh, just injuries, right? Players can throw 200 innings a year, but need not be healthy for some portion of them. Like they can just make 
they take painkillers and, and get through it, right? And their community gets worse and so forth. Um, so there is quite a bit of randomness there. And what I think, what I've noticed in, in fantasy sports and talking to my friends, if they make the same, there's a lot of the same errors that happen as in front offices in baseball, which is kind of funny, which is that the components that they look on are very surface level. You know, they may seem advanced like XFIP and Sierra and, and weighted runs created. And those things are all great, but like that's open information and that everyone's analyzing it and just placing a different model over it, which means it's just your opinion. And there's really very little uh, hay to, to make there. But on the side of like stuff plus and breaking ball changes and adjusting for organization, like which organizations do a good job developing talent, which organizations do a poor job, right? And those things over time really matter, especially in season long uh, analyses, but even in daily fantasy sports, because a player may be on a major league roster for a team and that team might have a really good reputation, might be good at developing players. And that player starts off the season extremely poorly or in line with his projections. But all the projections you read on fan graphs and so forth don't they, they assume that player development in every organization is held constant, right? That, and that's that's just not true. Like everyone knows that the Kansas City Royals do a poor job of developing pitchers. We know that. And yet the same projection algorithm that you use, you know, will be applied to players of, in the Royals as the same as the Giants, as the same as the Guardians, you know, that, and that's just silly. Right. Like their projection should be wildly different. And yet that's very rarely factored in. And in my experience, never factored in. Um, so things like fastball velocity, which steamer projections uses, but very few others do stuff plus and tracking which organizations have a history of developing players and have acquired coaches that do a good job, I think uh, is a very underexplored side of it. Right. And the most common one that's on Twitter and I think a big meme right, is the cheating lab that the San Francisco Giants have which I think is a, is a great way to put it. Like Alex Cobb is having a great year. Um, you know, Jacob Junis from the Royals now they're having a great year and so forth. And they're throwing harder. Um, you know, both those players actually end up training driveline. <laughs> That's just part of it. Right. But giants are not only, they do a great job in, of themselves, but they also embrace, you know, individuality. They embrace training programs from outside the organization. You know, and then they see uh, the results are what they are. They're not that surprising. You know, so I think adjusting for organization is, is an area where maybe some there's an edge that people aren't uh, investigating. From a, from a fantasy perspective, there are times when upside is at a premium and there are times when consistency is at a premium. What are the characteristics of a pitcher that has high upside? High variance. <laughs> so high walk rates, high strikeout rates. Um, I'm thinking of a couple of pitchers with the Tampa Bay Rays. <laughs> that would be it. Um, but any given day, you know, where you can see Crazy. Like Tim Linskin would probably be the number one guy for me, right? The Cy Young winner back to back to back, or I think back to back. And then one, another one after that, um, there are games that he would like pitch two innings and give up a million runs. It's amazing, right? Like how could, how is that possible? And it's because like their, you know, their command is pretty poor. Their, their average miss distance is, is high. So on a day that it's abnormally high, you just see you know, really outlier results. And on a day that their average miss distance is abnormally low, you see some of the best baseball ever. Right. So going with, uh, like high stuff guys, high walk guys is, is, is a nice, nice way to buy some variants for sure. So like a, like a Blake Snell throws real hard and yeah. has a lot of variety and Blake Snell, historically Robbie Ray, although that's changed considerably lately, he's now just one of the best pitchers in baseball, but you know, before it was a high variance, you know, high variance guy, you never really knew what you were going to get. And you said earlier that there are some days where their mechanics are just better. So the, the it's not all randomness. There is just off days for the, for the guys where they're not feeling feeling good and they're putting release yep. points are bad. Their fingers are in bad positions and yeah, absolutely. Just 
you know, maybe going through a breakup at home. Like, yeah, they're humans too, right? So they're just every like you, there's bad days at work and so forth. And so they're pitching every fifth or sixth day. And every five days, do you feel the same? You know, no. Uh, yeah, they're professional athletes. They're paid to be machines. But the truth is they're not. You know, they're mid-20s men with the same problems other mid-20s men have that aren't related to money, but they have all the same issues. Um, so there's going to be up and down um, support there. And uh, yeah, that, that's, you know, to the fan, that's, an, that's just a, that's randomness, you know, to the individual, it's, it's deterministic, but then knowing it is, you know, nearly impossible, right? Because the player often doesn't even know themselves. And so the, the high consistency guy would be first defined by a low walk rate or how it, I would say so. Yeah, I would say that a low walk rate, someone that throws a high strike percentage and has like a very kind of defined plan and is a veteran. So Kyle Hendricks is like a pretty good example of that. Um, is a guy with a low walk rate and like low-ish strikeout rate. But, you know, you know, if you need to buy consistency, uh, Hendricks is like probably one of the better ones. And he has like pretty, pretty steady. The average is close to the median, I would guess. It runs given up like per game. I like it. Well, I'm at my time limit, but I do have one final question for you because I, I had the fun experience this quarter of teaching uh, sports analytics at University of Miami. Um, all of the students want to work in sports, um, ideally for a team. I uh, had Shane Battier come in and tell them what it was like to work at the Heat. He basically told them that they're never going to see Jimmy Butler they're never going to talk with Spo. They didn't care. They don't care if they're in a window, windowless room. They just want to work for a team. Um, someone who wants to work in baseball and is currently in college or grad school, what advice do you have for them? I really would like to hear Shane's talk now. <laughs> that sounds about right. Um, you know, you just got to be able to create value. So much of it used to be connections or the Harvard and, and where you went and going to the same school that the GM went. Amherst, obviously very popular now. Um, but Right now, with the internet being the way it is, just creating you know something different, models and being able to get it to the field. Right, the baseball is full, and basketball too is full of smart people that know exactly what to do and how to solve the game and how to get that you know that strategy. It's like this is an unassailable strategy. Like here's all our models. It's definitely good. Why doesn't anyone do it? And like if you really think about that, that's you passing the buck. Right. So if you have these models you developed or you, these this great information as someone who studied quite a bit of academic, you know, information and theory, how can you get it to the field? Right. So volunteering for a college team, volunteering for like little league high school, so forth, things that seem like they're beneath you or crazy aren't like being able to show that you've actually applied some analytical concepts, whether it's in player development or scouting or so forth, to an actual field need not be at the highest level, but that you've actually done it shows A, that you're willing to do that type of work and B, that there might actually be some applied concept to your theoretical work um, because people should be ready to be hum be humbled when you have all these models and things that you think predict RA9 and so forth. And like, we know these things would work and if we use an opener or whatever, like if we just use pinch runners differently, the vast majority of that information has been mined and sits in a database and just sits in a, Atlassian Jira file somewhere, you know, just sits somewhere, but like who, what coaches are willing to actually like a convince players of it, B being willing to get them to test it and then C generate results in a rigorous way. And that is sorely lacking. So the ability to get out there and actually help players and coaches uh, is I think the number one way to get noticed in the game in baseball, basketball, anywhere, um, I think is, is by far the biggest inefficiency and the biggest way to get noticed. I love it. Well, Kyle, thanks so much. This was great. Awesome. Thanks. And I'll get down to Miami soon, hopefully.